Over the years, I've had conversations with people after a service with folks who are struggling with the matter of doubt. They come because of a lack of assurance that their belief is real. Sometimes it sounds like this. Mark, I'm just not sure that I'm really a believer. How can I know for sure? When that question comes my direction, I never dismiss it flippantly. Instead, I usually ask a few questions about maybe some suffering that's going on in their life that's putting them under a pressure that would make them doubt. Perhaps in regards to a, a nagging sin issue that just won't go away and is creating internal guilt and tension. I ask about their engagement in a church and how does the body of Christ fit into that picture. And if they're going through those diagnostic questions, if all of those turn out to be non-starters um, in terms of perhaps the cause, I'll say something like this. You know, the people who really should doubt their belief don't. The people who should doubt their belief don't. Not trusting yourself is actually a pretty good sign that you're a legitimate follower of Jesus. Here's what I found in my lifetime, and I've found this to be true in pastoral ministry, that the more I understand about the gospel, the more I understand about Jesus, the more I understand about me, the more I look at my own faith and go, how do I know that I'm really real? John Calvin, in his classic book, The Institutes of Christian Religion, said this. When we say that faith must be certain and secure, we certainly speak not of an assurance which is never affected by doubt, nor a security which anxiety never assails. We rather maintain that believers have a perpetual struggle with their own unbelief. In other words, being sure that you're really a Christian is something that real Christians regularly consider. So we're going to walk through 1 John 2, verses 3 through 11, and I have three particular aims or three particular groups of people that I have in mind. There are some of you who, as I'm walking through this text, my aim is to bring comfort to your heart. There are some of us who have tender consciences. We are prone to doubt, to assume the worst about ourselves. And my hope is that as we walk through this text that you'll be comforted, I hope you'll be encouraged and exhorted to keep following Jesus and not give up. There's some of you that the last thing in the world you need is for somebody to press a little harder on the doubt button because you touch that button all the time. So I hope to be comforted today. There's a second group where I hope that you'll be cautioned. There are some who need to hear this message today and consider carefully kind of what you're doing and what you're considering to do. Perhaps because of a level of overconfidence or a dullness of heart that has developed over time, or 
maybe a cavalier spirit where you just feel like you can do whatever you want to do. I hope that this text will perhaps pull you back. And then there's a third group where I pray that 1 John chapter 2 will result in deep conviction. There's some of you that, frankly, I would love for you to feel the full weight of this text because what you need to acknowledge is that your belief is just not working. What you say you believe and how you live, they don't fit at all. And that's a problem, and you know it. And my hope is that today you'll come to terms with that respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This text is before us today with the purpose of helping to affirm this central truth, and that is this. When it comes to what you believe, what you do and what you don't do matters. When the Bible speaks of assurance, it does two things. On the one hand, it identifies the hope of putting our trust in Christ and looking to him and knowing whom we believe in, and that is absolutely a part of what it is to receive assurance. But there's another side of it which is designed to validate, do you really understand what you believe? And in that respect, the Bible says that belief in Jesus changes people. So therefore, you know that you love Jesus by virtue of what you consistently, not perfectly, but what you consistently do and don't do. Let me say that again. You know that you love Jesus by what you consistently, but not perfectly, do or don't do. So there's a connection between your actions and what you really believe. And today, this text highlights that framework, that mindset, that validation in two key areas in regards to obedience and regards to love. So what you do or don't do matters. So first, the matter of obedience. Last week, we talked about the matter of forgiveness and confession, how our view of God, our view of confession, our view of forgiveness is informed by our belief. And John provided in chapter one and verse nine a hopeful assurance that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the hope for forgiveness rests on God. Then in verse three of chapter two, It's as though John continues with the implications of this spiritual reality, anticipating that some would ask, but how do I know if I'm genuine? That's why he says in verse three, and by this we know that we have come to know him. That word know is used twice in this text. Whenever you see the Bible repeat words in that close proximity, take note of them. John loves this word know. In the book of 1 John, for instance, he uses it 37 times. In the gospel that bears his name, John's gospel, he uses the word know 106 times. And in fact, when John wants to describe the lost condition of the world in John chapter one, he says this, that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. So over the world is a blanket statement. The lost, broken condition of humanity is that the world doesn't know him. What does that mean? John uses different words throughout First John and his gospel for the word know, this particular word here means more than intellectual knowledge. It means more than facts. 
And this is important because in John's day, there were some false teachers who were suggesting that spirituality was merely a matter of what you knew. They downplayed obedience, sort of creating this dichotomy. You could believe one thing but do another. It was as though the soul was good, the mind was good, and the body was neutral. So it didn't matter what you did morally as long as you had the right beliefs. This is one of the reasons why John starts his letter talking about the physicality of Christ. He says he sees him with his eyes, he touched with his hands. John is targeting here an over-spiritualized vision of Christianity. I trust you know that that over-spiritualized vision of Christianity is still present with us. It sounds like this. I'm spiritual but not religious. A survey in 2017 concluded that over a quarter of people living in the United States consider them to fit within this category of spiritual but not religious. It's it's increasing dramatically. And in fact, if you're a millennial or below, the percentage is even higher. The idea is that they might believe in spirituality but there's a rejection of traditional religious institutions, like the church, and the teaching of the Bible, especially as it relates to morality and issues of sexual morality. So someone can be spiritual, but completely disconnected from what they do and how they live. And increasingly in our culture, that's okay. And John would say, no. It's not, which is why John directly and frankly rather uncomfortably links intellectual knowledge with experiential knowledge. That's what the word know means. It isn't just intellectual knowledge, it's experiential knowledge. So John says, how do we know that we know him? Not just know him in our heads, how do we know that we really know him? How do we know that we know Jesus in our experience? And John answers the question in verse three, it says, if we keep his commands. He directly links, notice, obedience with the experiential proof of what you believe. Again, what you do and what you don't do matter. John Stott says this, no religious experience is valid if it does not have moral consequences. Let me say that again. No religion experience, no religious experience is valid if it does not have moral consequences. Titus 1.16 says that there are some who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Verse 4, John reiterates this with even stronger language. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. I mean, does anybody not know what that means? <laughs> John's just like straight up. You say, I know him, and you don't obey him, you're lying. And he says, the truth is not in him. You see, what John is saying is something that just makes sense, but in our context, in our culture, we tend to sort of pull the blocks, the foundation of this belief away, which is simply this, that your words are tested by your works. That conduct confirms confession. 
One of the reasons that baptism is such an important moment, it is the time when a person goes public with their walk with Christ. I've said this before, if nobody at work knows that you're a Christian, you're probably not one. If nobody in your neighborhood knows that you're a Christian, you're probably not one, because people knowing that you're a Christian is part of what it means to be a Christian. Now this is a heavy and important truth. Words are tested by works. Already, some of you who need to be comforted, you're already feeling the walls closing in, so let me speak to those of you who have tender consciences who need to be comforted. That if you are regularly seeking deeper and deeper ways to pursue obedience, if over the last week you were fighting against sin, not perfectly, but you have an orientation that I want to obey, my encouragement to your brother or sister is you must not quit. Well done that you fought all week. God isn't asking you to be perfect. He's simply calling you to connect with what you believe and how you live. And so if that's how you're wired and that's what you're trying and you're striving, and I know you haven't done it perfectly last week, and there were times of confession, as you think about just your failures, they are many and they are sorrowful to your heart. All of those things are really good signs. If, on the other hand, you come into church and you're like, nailed it last week, you're in trouble. You are. And for you, you need a caution. Because there can be developing within you this this self-assurance that is incredibly dangerous. Oh, you'll find other people that you're better than. You'll compare yourself to others. You'll see how bad things are out in the world. And you'll have all these things about what you did not do. But the reality is your heart needs to be cautioned about a self-assurance and overconfidence. Or maybe it is that over the last week some things came across your path and you thought, hmm, are those things really that bad? And years ago you would have thought, no, I'm not gonna go down that path. But you've begun to think and wonder or ponder, can you just receive this warning today? If what you believe is real, you will not go down that path. And there are some of you who need to be convicted Because if you're honest, there's an ongoing sin pattern in your life that has become, listen, normal and defining. It's not just that you've messed up, it's not just that you're tempted, it means that this this has become who you are. You can't stop, you won't stop, and frankly, you should be scared to death of the blatant inconsistency between what you say you believe and how you live. And I hope that this text will push you toward repentance. Frankly, if you can still hear what I'm saying, if you still feel any level of conviction, you ought to be thankful because that conviction is a gift and it may not be there forever. So don't make the mistake of so many thinking, well, I'll deal with this later. My push on you would be, how's that worked previously? So disobedience is a problem. And yet, thankfully, John doesn't just stay here in the negative. He gets to the other side on the positive. Look at verse 5. He then says this. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is is, is perfected. The word keep, it, it means to guard. It means continue in. If you're into English castles or if you build them on Minecraft, It's the big building that you put all your armaments in. It's where you run to when the city, the castle gets surrounded. It's where you keep your most prized possessions. So to keep the word is to treasure it, to value it, to obey it, to live in it. 
And the Bible says that when you do this, then the love of God is perfected in us. Now here's an interpretive question. Does that mean that God's love is perfected toward us or does it mean that our love is perfected toward God? There's two ways you could go. In context, I think it's that our love is perfected towards God. Perfected doesn't mean that it's like without any need for growth, but rather it means that it's made complete. Or think of it this way. This is the way that your love for God is validated. This is really hopeful. It means this, that every time you choose to obey, every time you respond, every time you hear the word and you go, mmm, that is true, and you do something with it, it validates that you're real. Every time you follow Jesus, every time you ask someone's forgiveness, every time that you get realsy about what's going on inside your heart and you're like, I need help. Every time you do that and you start following Jesus, you give evidence that you are the real deal. And every time that you begin to fake it till you make it, every time you try and pretend something that you're not, it calls into question, do I really believe this or don't I? Verse six connects all this to Jesus. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. So what we find here is that true love for God is expressed not by sentimental language or mystical experience, but in obedience. So can we just be honest? It's not so hard to obey God in this environment. We're controlling what you're hearing. We're controlling what you're singing. There's other people around you. There's peer pressure, et cetera, et cetera. This is the easier part of obedience. The real challenge is when you're out in the world. The real challenge is when you're all by yourself and something comes across your path. And in that moment, you've got to decide, is this legit or is it not legit? And what John is saying is, is that if you abide in him, then you ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. So the hope of Christianity is not only that our sins can be forgiven, but even more, it is that the transforming power of this new position of forgiveness does something in us. So notice the belief in God here and in his grace transforms your heart such that now you have a different orientation, a different motivation, such that you want to walk as Jesus walked. So mark it down somewhere in your head, believing in Jesus means behaving like Jesus. That's what God saved you for. He didn't just save you so you could go to heaven. He saved you so you could be like Jesus. And at one level, this is so incredibly comforting. Because the more that you grow in Christ's likeness, the more you understand how beautiful he is, and the more you understand how far you have to go, the more that maturity is seen as the evidence of Christ's likeness comes in and through you. And as a result, you should be deeply encouraged to keep growing, keep confessing, keep becoming like Jesus, to be able to anticipate this next week and to be able to celebrate moments when things come out of your mouth that you know were righteous, but they could never come from you. When God helps you to love somebody that's hard or you don't respond in a way that you would normally have responded. As a husband, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wife, she respects her husband. You raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. As a single adult, you figure out how to use your singleness and platform the gospel. And all those things are so incredibly not you. And when you see them, you ought to see them, savor them, and say to Jesus, thank you. Look what you're doing in my life. 
It's unbelievable. It should also serve as a caution. Because for some, your passion or your desire to follow Jesus may have faltered in the last seven days, and so the motivator for you now is to seek God's help and seek transformation in new and deeper ways. You could, should count it a grace that you're here today hearing this message so that God can reorient your mind and your heart. There's others of you that need to feel deep conviction because there is just straight up blatant inconsistency. There's some of you today who you claim to be a follower of Jesus and truth be told is you're not and you know it. What you've done is you've convinced yourself that you could believe one thing and live another thing and that's okay, it's not okay, that doesn't work. Obedience helps, to see, helps us see if we are indeed real. So this text brings comfort, it brings caution, it brings conviction as it relates to obedience. There's another category and it's the matter of love. So in verses seven to 11, John takes this idea of obedience, this general category, and he drives it down into a very specific application of an area of obedience, namely our relationships with one another. And what John does here is he warns us about the incongruence of hatred and belief. Now, we'll come back to this subject, the idea of loving others later in May, because John repeats particular subjects, this one in particular. But for today, I, I just want you to see his argument in connection to true belief. Verse seven, John says, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. So he essentially says, this is not a new commandment. Well, why is it not new? Well, because this is what Jesus said in his teaching. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one, no one than this, that someone should lay down his life for his friends. So this is not new, what John is saying. This is not a new idea. It shouldn't surprise you that I suggest, John says, that you should love one another. And yet, look at verse eight. He says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. Well, how is it new then? Here's how it's new. Which is true in him and in you. There it is, that's how it's new. It's not a new commandment, but it's applied in a new way because what's true in Jesus is also true in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The idea is this, that because of the resurrection power of Christ, those who really believe in him have been placed in Christ. All the spiritual blessings that now are afforded to Jesus are given to those who are in him and the resurrection power of Jesus that raised him from the dead is now available for those who still have not died, who live on this earth, who can now apply that resurrection power so they can live lives that are radically different than where they used to be. The idea is this darkness is passing away, the true light is already shining. The ministry of Christ brought light into the world, his death set in motion the passing away of darkness, and therefore, just consider this, what's true about Jesus is true of those who believe in him. That's unbelievable, and that's why we sing. That's why we love the scriptures. That's why we embrace confession. That's why we love the words of the scriptures that talk about God's grace. 
And that's why obedience and love are so important because the resurrection power of Jesus means that there is this heart-based change that affects our relationship with God and it affects our relationship with one another. In other words, obedience is not just what you do, but obedience relates to how you treat one another, how we treat each other. So individuals and communities who claim allegiance to Christ must embrace the social implications of that relationship. So verse 9 helps us to see what it's all about. Here it is. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Verse 9 identifies the problem that if somebody says, I'm in the light, but I hate my brother, something's wrong there. It doesn't work. Remember, darkness is, chapter 1 and verse 5, not a part of God at all. So the presence of hatred then calls into question if one really believes. So in the same way that disobedience as a general category calls into question whether or not one really believes, so too the presence of hatred also calls into question if one truly believes. Text goes on and it says, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So what does the word hate mean? The word is used for the way enemies are to be treated, are treated, not to be treated, but are treated. It's used for how persecutors respond to the church. It's used for the overall behavior of the world. It essentially means this. To hate someone means you despise them, you dislike them intensely, you have a strong aversion towards them. It's an emotional posture where you refuse to give that person grace and or you don't want them to receive any grace. Take it from 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love. It's the opposite. Hate is the opposite of bearing all things, believing all things, enduring all things. Hatred is the opposite of being patient. Hatred is the opposite of being kind. Hatred involves being rude to people. It involves being irritable. It involves being resentful. Hatred rejoices when someone gets hurt. It does not mean that there is no disagreement doesn't mean we just sing kumbaya and all get along all the time. doesn't mean that there's no differences. doesn't mean that there's no tension. Nor does it mean that you're best friends with everyone. But it does mean that there's this basic orientation where you don't have a heart set towards the destruction of other people. You realize that doesn't work with the gospel. And so this then applies at a personal level in terms of our relationships. It also applies in a broader category of people in regards to groups or ethnicity. It's a reminder on both sides of the ethnic divide that the gospel conquers any sense of superiority that one group would have over another in hating them because they're different. But it also means we don't allow the hurts of the past to create hatred in our hearts. So on either side of the racial divide, The gospel enters into this mix and says, at the end of the day, the gospel requires that we love one another. Verse 10 takes it further. 
and says that there's no cause for stumbling. Why would he say that? Well, here's why. Because look, if you have hatred in your heart for somebody, it causes an internal problem that then gets amplified. The person that you're at odds with, the person you don't like, or a particular group of people, or or, uh, an ethnicity that you don't like, or a group of people like pastors, or politicians, or police officers, or anyone in authority, you have this thing against them, and the minute anything happens, they say something, they act a particular way, you jump emotionally because all these things that are stored up inside. Verse 11 reiterates this, saying that the person filled with hatred is full of darkness. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Notice, blinded, blinded. You've sensed this, haven't you? You've been so frustrated with someone, they did something, you immediately shot off words that you wish you could take them back. Can't even believe how ridiculous the words are. At the time, they seemed so right. Yesterday, I worked outside most of the day, was tired, came in, sat down, and watched a little bit of an NBA game. There's this thing that's developed over the years where a replay can be used to determine if a foul should be flagrant or a technical, and in this particular game, there, there was a few of them, a lot of them. And it's just remarkable as they play back the tape how ridiculous grown men look when they're getting each other's grill, right? At the time, you could just kind of see it fast happen in motion. It didn't look so big, and then they, they, or didn't look so foolish, but then you replay it, and you got this guy going, (laughs) and this guy hitting his, right? He's just kind of replaying it slow motion, and they just look ridiculous, right? What if God could replay the tape in your home? I didn't see that one coming, did you? Huh? <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that's it. God drops a mic in your house and just says, hey, let's just, re- let's just replay that tape for everybody, shall we? You'd be like, no, 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 no. Last week I got someone pocket called me left me a voicemail, I was like, what is this? And they were taking their dog out to go to the bathroom, and they're out there going, hey, she go, go, poo, poo, come on. And I was like, delete, delete, delete. And I just thought, what if, what if everything was recorded all the time? We just go, hey, let's just play back the tape in that meeting, shall we? Let's just play back the tape in that conversation. We would be mortified. You know why? Because at the moment, our hatred, our anger, our frustration seems so justified. But at second glance, we take a look, we realize, what was I thinking? This is what this is talking about. And there's some of you that you feel this towards your spouse, you feel this towards a friend, you feel this towards a group of people, you feel this towards certain kind of folks. And truth be told, you think that you're using this to get on them, and the reality is what's happening is it's eating something out from inside your soul. Tim Keller says this, when you try to get payment through revenge, the evil does not disappear. Instead, it spreads, and it spreads most tragically of all into you and into your own character. So brother, sister, before you go too far down this road, can I just remind you that hatred, revenge, animosity, bitterness, slander, malice, they need to be put away because they grieve the Holy Spirit. Hatred in all its forms do not fit with belief. So let me bring comfort to those of you who have to love hard people. You may feel taken for granted of, you may feel, um, you may feel taken for granted, you may feel um, unfairly treated, 
Maybe the last week you've had to absorb some mistreatment or someone's been terribly insensitive to you, been hurtful, and you find yourself coming to church today, you're just so tired and so weary, and you find yourself thinking this kind of thought, I don't know if I can keep responding in a Christ-like manner. Can I just remind you, anybody can harbor bitterness. It takes no spiritual triumph to nurse a grudge. Anybody can lash back. There's nothing special about that, but it takes a work of the Spirit to produce a Christ-likeness in you. So when those things come and you respond in Christ-likeness, rejoice that you got the opportunity to prove that you were legit. And don't quit. Some of you have to be careful because this message lands on you while you're not only tired, you started to justify your sinful responses. You got a list about all the reasons why your hatred is the exception. And yet somewhere you know that your posture towards that person is just not right. Why not receive this word today and and choose to put on kindness, put on tenderheartedness, put on a spirit of forgiveness? And finally, there are others of you who need to feel the weight of conviction. Truth be told, you're, you're regularly filled with hatred and yet you claim to be a Christian. Could look like animosity towards any number of people or situations, but there's just this brewing sense. And you can tell me all about your past and all about your parents, how much better you are than your history of all of your your lineage, and I get all of that, but the fact of the matter is your dad or your mom is not your target, Jesus is. And when you came to Christ, you looked to Jesus as your example Or you didn't look to Jesus, you just wanted to be better than your lineage. And this text calls us to realize that you can't love Jesus and love your hate. You have to choose. Because what we do and what we don't do matters. What is assurance? Assurance is the hope that our belief is real. And it doesn't come by just looking within. That's part of it. Ultimately, it comes by looking to Christ, seeing what he is like, and saying to him, Lord Jesus, as it relates to obedience and as it relates to love, would you help me to be like you? And when you, God helping you, look like him, It's evidence that your belief actually works. Lord heaven, Lord in heaven, pray that you would help us for those who need to be comforted today that you would, Lord, provide the kind of help and the grace that is so needed to love hard people. And for those who have any any number of reasons to nurse a grudge, some people in the world would look at them and say, you got every right. Pray, Lord, that they'd be able to put on the love of Jesus. And God, where we need conviction and where we need levels of caution, would you just apply your grace to us that we could be the kind of folks who would follow you and give evidence that our belief is real. And then, Father, for some today who just, maybe today they need to realize this 
This isn't legit. I need to own up to it and say, Jesus, come be my Savior. Really, come be my King. So Lord, apply your word, we pray, in our hearts. By your Spirit and through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.